Some of you have been uh, to London, England, and you've seen this iconic site there that is about 300 feet high. You're gonna see a picture of it here. Anybody know uh, what that is right there? Big Ben, yep, you said it. And, uh, but you don't see a lot of Big Ben, do you? All you see is that clock there. By the way, you know how big that is? The arms on the clock, that minute hand, how long do you think that is? It's 14 feet long. It's a big clock, huh? One on each side. But you can't really see Big Ben very much, can you, because of all the what? All the scaffolding. And you sort of go, well, Big Ben is in there somewhere, but it's been covered up by a lot of stuff around it. In the coming few months, after what has been a lot longer project than they anticipated of renovations and more money, as often is the case, Big Ben, the scaffolding is going to come down, and Big Ben's going to look like that right there. Beautiful tower when you're in London, you go... Okay, if you're looking for direction, you're, I, know, I know where that is, right there in the Thames, and, and you, you can do that. And when the scaffolding's taken away, you see the beauty and the glory of Big Ben. Sometimes that needs to happen with our faith in Jesus. That as we're, those of us who have been Christians, sometimes our faith gets all kind of scaffolding around it, and we have you know, teachings about Christianity or things about Jesus that are not really part of the Bible or we just get so busy in what we're doing that it, it, we lose sight of Jesus and there's this scaffolding that comes up and, and we begin and sometimes we go, I, I just want to see Jesus. I, I want to know Jesus. I want Jesus to, I want to see all of his beauty and his glory. It's actually a good thing, right? Because... To be a follower of his is the most important command is to do what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, all your strength. You go, I want to love Jesus. And sometimes that involves taking some scaffolding off. Maybe you've heard the phrase when someone has said, I've, I've been deconstructing my faith. You heard that? Best case scenario of that is that they're saying, I want to remove some of the scaffolding that has built itself up around who Jesus is. Maybe they conclude that their faith has been tied up too closely with their politics. They were in a place that to be a Christian meant you had to stand with this or that candidate, uh, that you had to have a particular view on taxes or healthcare or education, that to be a Christian meant that you had to see it one way. And so a person who starts to deconstruct in this way, they don't leave the faith, but their deconstruction takes off some of the scaffolding of what maybe caused them to not see Jesus clearly. Then there are those who have been wounded by the church. This always grieves me. Um, someone says, I was mistreated in the church. Uh, there was a place I got either bullied by some other kids or there was an adult who was mean to me or mistreated me. And or there was someone I really respected that went off the rails in their faith and there was great hypocrisy and, and it's hard to disentangle your faith from some of what we see in the church and you go, it's just, it's tough. And they deconstruct. 
some of them don't leave Jesus behind. But what really makes my heart ache is when I see people who deconstruct and they not only throw out the scaffolding, but they throw out whom? Jesus, right? And we've all heard those stories. If you've been on social media, you've seen some of those. I'll just mention one. Some of you know the book that was written in the 90s, sort of a blockbuster called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anybody remember that book? Written by a guy named Josh Harris. He was the ripe old age of 21 years old. Book sold in the millions. He ended up getting married, having three kids, you know, became pastor of a large church in Maryland, spoke all over, wrote some more books. Two years ago, well, several years ago, he first he said, I, I, I renounced that book. Two years ago, he left the church. A month after that, he left his wife. And then, within short order, he said, I no longer call myself a Christian. He's not the only one, like I said, deconstructing their faith. And it's painful to watch, and, and we watch someone do that, and we go, and maybe for you it's not a celebrity, maybe for you it's a family member or a friend, or maybe it's you, and you're like, I don't really know what I believe. I'm sort of in this process of trying to figure out what's Jesus and what's the scaffolding. What do we do if we know someone who's in that situation? who says they're deconstructing. For starts, the most important thing you can do is take time to listen, to hear their concerns and questions, to pray for them, to ask God to help them discern what's scaffolding and what's genuine. Don't freak out, and if you do freak out, just say, hey, I'm really sorry, it's sort of scary for me to think of you trying to figure out if you really believe anymore, and if you're willing, I'd love to talk with you through it. Your kindness and your love may be exactly what that person needs. And you may even find that you disagree with some of their issues. They might say, no, I don't think I can believe in a God that you know, I used to believe in. You go, well, what kind of God do you find difficult to believe in? They go, well, any God that would you know, see all the suffering children in the world and just turn a blind eye and doesn't really give a rip. And you can say, well, I don't believe in a God like that either. Because you know that's not what the Bible teaches, right? that he weeps over the suffering of those in the world. And so you listen, you love no matter what, and you ask Jesus to help you be contagious in your faith and joy. And you might also ask, I'm just curious, what alternative worldview have you found more satisfying? Because here's what also is true. Quite a few people who are in deconstruction mode, listen to this, they begin to doubt their doubts. What does that mean? They begin to doubt their doubts. That they start wondering, have I, have I given away something that may actually be true? Have I thought that some questions about God and spirituality are unanswerable and maybe they're not? Did I come to the Bible and say it's full of contradictions and I'm starting to hear some explanations that maybe the contradictions aren't as big as what I thought and there are some responses that make sense. Because unless we bury our heads in the sand, we're still all faced, whether we're strongly followers of Jesus or deconstructing or we've never given Jesus really an opportunity, all of us have to come back and answer the big questions of life like, where did I come from? And why am I here? And like someone just told me a few moments ago, 
They said, if you were in a plane accident and, and, and you didn't live, where would you be? Like, we all gotta answer that question, right? And what's wrong with the world and how did it get wrong and how is it gonna be made right? And the answers to those questions begin to shape our identity. Can I just say again, I have found no answer and no person as satisfying as Jesus Christ. That he's the, he, he's, I can just say he loved me and gave himself for me. Does that mean I don't have any questions? I have questions. Do I have some things I don't have figured out? For sure, but I believe that Jesus and who he claims to be is the most satisfying and greatest hope that we could ever have. So today, here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to look at how an early Christ follower answers some of these questions. In the light of some of the doubts we may have and some of the questions that we ask to say, what, does, what did the early church, what do those first Christians really believe? And I can think of no book that summarizes what the way of Jesus is all about more clearly and crisply than Paul's letter to the Romans. So would you turn there with me? Romans chapter one. I wanna say again, uh, just greetings to all of you who are engaging online. You'll find there's a bulletin on our homepage and at the, uh, in that bulletin you'll find uh, message notes or go to the Grace app, download the Grace app and those of you here, maybe you got message notes on the way and if not, you can get those uh, there as well. Quick overview of Romans. You might remember from last week, the outline we had, how you can divide the book of Romans into five parts. And I found this the most memorable outline. In fact, I'd love to have you just say with me these five S's because this will give you a summary of the message of Romans. You ready? Let's say them together aloud. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. So we're gonna be digging into those. What do those each mean? But right now, we're in that first one. I like doing it right there. I like to point right at it. Uh, with sin, and uh, he starts there because we need to know how awful our spiritual condition is, how fatally flawed we are before we can say, I need a cure. Like, I, I gotta have some answers and to find out the wonder of what Jesus has done for us because here's our natural tendency. What Paul establishes in these first three chapters is, is he's going, we have this infection of sin. And it started in the very beginning with our first human ancestors. And, and this sinful tendency causes us to have this, we want to move away from God. This innate desire to live life on our own terms. And at some point, we begin to realize it doesn't work. It doesn't work to just live life on my own. Even if I'm highly successful in the eyes of the world and people are jealous of what I have, I go, there's something that is not right in my soul. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And Paul answers that. Gives a summary verse, you could say, of how life doesn't work. He writes in verse 31, he says, People who push God to the periphery refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. You might go, I know some people push God or don't do that. What he's saying is, that is what's at the end of the road. Your heart just sort of begins to shrivel. You treat people with less than dignity, and, and it grieves God because he made us, and he made the people around us. And it's sort of like if you're a parent, you know, you've, you see your child being bullied by another 
child on the playground, what does that do with any of you to go, yeah, it's just the way it is. No, mama bear comes out, right? Papa bear comes out, I'm like, I'm gonna go teach that little six-year-old a lesson. I'm not gonna treat my child that way. We, our hearts are grieved and, and we see someone mistreating another person, we go, you, you can't devalue them like that. And that's how Paul begins this section of verse 18. Let's read those verses and we'll start to make our way through the second half of this chapter. He says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Sometimes people go, I thought the wrath of God was just in the Old Testament. No, it's any time that people walk away from him is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is what? Is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. You hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, we have no excuse for living a life without God because of two gifts that God gives to every person. First gift is our conscience. A conscience that instinctively tells us that God exists and to discern right from wrong. He says two times in verse 19, he says, God has made it plain to us. There's just something we just, we just know inherently. Conscience is how you explain why in every single culture, people just know it's wrong to steal from somebody else, right? Or why in every culture that if someone were to sleep with your wife or your husband, if you're married, that in every culture that does something within us that we would, that we might be tempted to do things that we never thought possible. There's not one culture that goes, huh, I, there's something wrong with that? I, I don't know you can do that with my spouse. No, there's something, with, there's conscience, right, that we, we know there's just something that God has put within us that Paul says that he makes it plain to us. We, we know that there's right and wrong, and we know that God exists. Some of you remember this story, amazing story of Helen Keller and this uh, girl who was born uh, with all of her senses, but through a disease, she lost her sight and her hearing, and she was uh, mute. So she has this teacher, Ann Sullivan, who is just this amazing, patient, persevering teacher, and allowed Helen to, I mean, this incredibly gifted, um, intelligent person, you know, ends up speaking to presidents and all the rest. And she wrote in her um, and, and about some of the experience she had with Helen and how she sought to teach Helen um, various concepts, including the concept of God. And when she taught Helen, you know, was on her hands and taught her about God, you know what Helen said? She said, I, I already know about him. I just didn't know his name. I already know about him. I just didn't know his name. How does that happen? It's conscience, right? We have this sense that there's right and there's wrong and that there must be some kind of supreme moral being in the universe. That's not the only gift God has given us. He also gives us creation evidence. In verse 20, the next verse here, he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, the eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Theologians call that 
general revelation. This is right here is special revelation, God speaking to us through the Bible, but general revelation is God's fingerprints in nature, that there's just, it begs for an explanation. Uh, some of you know uh, how birds are, certain birds are able to navigate by stars, and even if they're hatched, I find this incredible, they're hatched and raised in a windowless building. If they're shown an accurate picture of the sky, like in a planetarium, they can migrate their way hundreds or even thousands of miles by the stars in the sky. And some of you are going, I wish I had just a teensy-weensy bit of that kind of sense of direction, right? You get lost even with the GPS. How about the archer fish? The archer fish is this fish that can shoot water out of its mouth with such force and accuracy that it brings insects right out of, this, out of the air and is able to have it for lunch. They're Chick-fil-A. How does a tiny seed grow into a giant redwood? See why Paul or David in Psalm 19, David says the heavens declare what? The glory of God, the earth, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. That there's something about creation that we just go, wow, it's not only my conscience, but I look around me in the order of the universe and in the intricate detail and the design and how it's all sustained, finely tuned. Mary and I have a friend named Jim who was a nuclear uh, engineer for you know, a few decades and a uh, highly intelligent guy who had long lived his life without God. And one day, something changed. And it was this topic right here. I'd like you to hear his story in one minute. Here's our friend, Jim. About four or five months after that, that period of time, when I had an, my first encounter with God, while sitting at my kitchen table looking at a beehive, uh, marveling at the, at the construction and the intricacy and how these little creatures in the dark could have made this thing. Who made this? How could they have done this? Uh, I heard this strong voice, just as strong as if someone was sitting here talking to me now. Um, I made them. I don't know how it happens in that kind of situation. Why you spend 30 some odd years doing everything you can to distance yourself from anything spiritual. And in that one instance, you become absolutely convinced that God exists and that he is the creator. Just a honeycomb. Can we say together, verse 20, let's say you're gonna see here on the screen. Let's read this together, you ready? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are, they're, they're what? You see, Paul's building up this case in these first three chapters to say, Folks, we're guilty, like our sin has pushed us away from God. We've pushed ourselves away from God. And, and when we do that, uh, rejecting what our conscience is telling us and what creation is speaking to us and we seek to live life without God, he says the results are devastating. There's this downward spiral when we live life without God. And listen to what he says 
uh, in verse 21, Paul gives this diagnosis, and, and listen to what he says, we do, and then what God does in response. He says, for although they knew God, like we, we just know there's some kind of being, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over and the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were aflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In a nutshell, here's what Paul is saying. Our brokenness produces idol-making hearts. When we, when we ignore God, there's this huge hole that remains in our heart and we, we fill it up with something. If someone tells you like, I, I don't have any God, I don't believe it, everybody has something that they try to put at the center of their lives that gives them meaning and purpose. And they can even be good things. It can be your career like advancement or promotions or, or better sex or to have a really nice house or travel or a sports team or a lower handicap or whatever it might be that you say, they're not bad things, but they don't work to be the core of who you are. They never ultimately satisfy. But Paul says that's what we try to do. If we push God out of our lives, we try to fill that space up with exchanges. We exchange God for other things, Paul says, and he gives three examples here. You'll see them in your notes and on the screen here. Substitutes that will never fill that hole in your heart. Now, we're slow learners. We think just a little bigger house or one more promotion or a little more money, a little bit better sex or a little bit, you know, another trip or something else will keep us happy and fulfilled. But what we find out is that these trades never satisfy in the end. Like when we push God out and we try to ask any addict and they'll go, what, what used to satisfy me? Oh my goodness, years, I, I surpassed that and I have to keep on going up the ladder because, because nothing can satisfy our souls Paul would say, like the Lord. And instead, at least anxiety and, and despair. He says in verse 21, he says, our thinking becomes futile. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Like we just begin to go, darkness begins to, to overwhelm us and we, we begin to go, what? what's the big point? Like what really, what's the answer? You know what God does Paul says, when we ignore him, sometimes what he does is God actually lets us have what we want. You might see some people who don't honor God, and you're like, why do they make so much money? Or they have you know, this or that or whatever. Paul tells us three times, he says, you know what God does? He gives them over. He's like, all right, if you, you wanna do that? Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. He says, he, he gives them over. Author Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the worst thing God can do to you and the most just form of punishment God could possibly give you is to give you over to the strongest desires of your heart. 
In other words, let your wishes come true. That's the worst thing God could possibly do and the most fair thing. Let everything happen the way you want it to happen. You know why? Because when you get everything you want and there still is a hole in your heart and you're not satisfied, you go, I thought that was going to answer this big need in my life and it's not working. That maybe we'll begin to reach out for him. But he says, before we come to that point, what we end up doing is we end up enslaved to the things that we thought would fulfill us. It says in verse 25, they worshiped and served, were enslaved to created things. You know anybody who's enslaved to their job? They're enslaved to a habit, enslaved to a hobby. They serve it. It's like they wake up and it's what they think about and they go, this is what, and, and, and it begins to, it creates this great insecurity. Again, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when I let something replace God in my life, I end up with something that goes wrong in my future and in my past and in my present. Here, here's, here's how it works. For one, when, when I push God away and I try to fill that spot up with something else, I end up with intense anxiety about the future. Suppose my highest value is politics, either the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. When my party experiences a defeat, I don't just experience a bit of disappointment. Instead, I'm shaken to the core of who I am. I might talk about leaving the country. I'm too furious to speak to anyone who voted for the other side. How dare they? And deep anxiety begins to grip my heart about the future. Everything's falling apart. Because I forget about the God who has made promises about the future. There's also overwhelming guilt about the past. Suppose that my performance as a parent, as a parent is valuable above everything else in my life. Essentially, it becomes my God. If my kids do well, I'm good. If my kids do bad. I, you know, you have a child who does something that uh, goes wrong or they end up with problems, and you're not just sorrowful or grieved you have almost like this neurotic guilt. You can't forgive yourself. You maybe even hate yourself. You go, what, what did I do wrong? There's something I missed. And, and it's in everything, and you have tremendous guilt about your past. And then he says, if, if we replace God with something else in our life, it leads to anger and bitterness in, in our presence. Suppose my career is the measure of my worth as a person, and someone in my circle at work is is standing in my way or harming that. I, I don't just get disappointed. I might get so deeply bitter and capable of doing things to that person that I end up destroying my own person and career. Friends, make no mistake, there's a high price to living life without God, the sinner. We may not be all the way down the pike, but what Paul wants to establish is when we push God to the edge when we have this sense of I can do it on my own, Paul says, I need you to know that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because before you can know how good the good news is, you have to know how terrible the bad news is. That without God, we're spiritually lost. Without hope. Can we just take a peek at the future though? Because you might go, Jonathan, this is a very depressing message. 
It's sort of like when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I need, I need to tell you something that, uh, about your numbers. Um, and, and you have a and it, and it's sort of, it's, it's like a spiritual defibrillator. And, and I want you to know that just like a doctor can say, it doesn't have to be this way. That, to a far greater degree to spiritually, if I have this fatal condition called sin, that, that Paul's gonna tell us, and we can just take a peek ahead at the good news, that through faith in Jesus, every single one of us can have a new start. The infection of sin can be done away with, that we can begin to engage with God again. And that can happen whether you've never really given your life to God, whether you're sort of in a deconstructed mode, you're like, I don't really know what I believe, that God can handle that. Or whether you're in a place where you say, oh, I've been walking with God a long time, but maybe you've drifted a little bit and your love for him isn't maybe what it used to be. Can we just remove a little bit of scaffolding for a second before we close? Friends, if you take down some of the scaffolding of whatever it is that has kept you from seeing Jesus clearly, can we just say one more time, his love for you is absolutely stunning. You know how it says that God gave them over? He gives us over to our own like these insatiable desires. Like, okay, you really want that? God doesn't stop there. You know what else he gave over? In Romans chapter eight, if we were to peek ahead, it says in Romans chapter eight that God gave his son over, Jesus, so that we could be adopted into his family. He gave Jesus over. In Ephesians chapter five, we read how Christ gave himself over. Why? Because he loved us. So he gave himself up, gave himself over for us. So friends, whatever has been done to push you away from Jesus or maybe make you question, maybe you've been wounded by the church or by a Christian or maybe there's something else going on in your life, you're like, I just don't really know. Can I point you to Jesus again? He's still the one who says today, come to me and live. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened with whatever is holding you down and I will give you rest. Is the bad news bad? Absolutely. Is the good news amazing? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift in Jesus Christ. I point you to him. Let's pray and thank him together. Jesus, how good you have been and how patient and kind to me, Lord, in my life and to all of us. We thank you today that we can look to Calvary, can look to the cross and know just how committed to us you are that you have done for me what another person could never do, a hobby, a job, a possession could never do for me, Lord Jesus. You alone can do, so we honor you today. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and help us to see Jesus clearly. In his name we pray, amen.